Welcome to 1962, exactly 60 years ago, end of summer, beginning of autumn 1962. I love the Beatles 60 podcast because, you know, following the Beatles 60 years ago today, each episode gives you a look into our worlds. Groovers listen, the interwebs are full of empty infotainment and the same old, same old about Beatles trivia. You deserve the real story. This is Beatles 60. Okay, you want your mind blown? The interval between this podcast episode and our next episode, 60 years ago, will have been the exact same interval, same amount of time. The Beatles would have experienced the exact same number of hours, same season, man. Northern Hemisphere, though. All you gotta do, man, who all of you who've been following this timeline with us already get the pace, man. You already understand, right? I mean, same daily pace. Technically, we'd call it a longitudinal phenomenological historiographic study. Hey, 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 Larry. What's with all the mumbo-jumbo? Well, this is serious. Quite a serious series. Time moves at one pace and in one direction. This is apparently so. At least in lived experience, Einstein may have disagreed, but... I, I mean, heck, uh, maybe time is round and, and space is curved. But <laughs> screw Einstein. Ultimately, we're talking about human experience. Linear time. We trace the sequence of events. It's amazing how much we're able to make clear sense of the Fab Four's development. Tis a pace, you know, forgetting it. Hence our wonderful slogan. Come on, let's say it together. Beatles 60, we ain't jumping around. Okay, so September 1962, what's going on? Well, <laughs> they were working towards their first single. And it was not a straightforward path to getting there. There was some pretty intense drama with Ringo coming. Um, but there was a feeling building that George Martin and the Beatles could do some great things together. Hmm. Um, so um, what are we going to talk about in this episode? Uh, well, we've got some insights about Julia Lennon from our recent talk with Jude Sutherland Kessler. Mm. Then we'll talk about uh, the route that was taken by Love Me Do on its path to being the Beatles' first single. Then some of that Ringo drama. Mm. You know, what must he have been thinking? Mm. And finally, uh, a sense of artist and label and producer working together has started to build now. All that coming up. Did you know you can get this podcast on Spotify and Apple? Well, you can. Okay, so September 1962. They've got a single. Yeah, a sing well, almost a single. Pretty soon. Very soon. It's a single. We're going towards the first single. Tangible product will make a world of difference. We've got a really big shoe. <laughs> Woo! 
Well, I'm Larry. I'm sometimes known as Rents or Lawrence, but I am Larry. I am Andy. Uh, you can find me as Andrew Martin Adamson, but just go ahead and call me Andy. This episode is called Towards a Single. Andy, why do we call it Towards a Single? Um, a lot of things had to happen in order for the first single to actually come about the way that it ultimately did. Uh, it wasn't just, okay, we got a song, we're going to do it the first single. It was it was a process. First is a big important point, though, isn't it? Because, like, they didn't they didn't know. They, they were never sure whether they were going to make it, going to get on the charts. Even, right. even after signing to Parlophone, it's like, eh, we're going to have to do some doofy how-do-you-do-it song. and Which they were very unhappy about the idea of. So, Well, then, that brings us to the where we going, fellas. We want to know where yeah. they're going. And here's the where we going music. And the music is over. Okay. Listener, remember, we're, we're in the middle, uh, actually late summer, 1962. Andy, how, so 62 is a dramatic time. They're still not famous. They're still only known in the northwest of England. Right. And, uh, you know, a few people here and there might have heard them on these BBC things, but still not a household name in the UK even. Uh Everyone knows that things, 62, things are going to change big time. But so uh, where are we? Where are we going, fellas? It'll be going pretty well once they get through the recording process. There were some bumps in the recording process. But, you know, they very likely felt that it was about the best feeling that they've had in years about their chances for the toppermost of the poppermost. Yeah, so they're so they're on the way. They're really they're really doing it, man. <laughs> they're really doing it. That's the that's the feeling, isn't it? Kind of like we're almost really doing it. It's going to be very exciting in a couple of months. Right now, we're right on the edge of that. So we're going to talk about the in this episode. What's coming up is we're going to talk about the the path of the sort of winding road toward. Uh, why Love Me Do became the A-side. It wasn't meant to be the A-side, but it became the A-side. Then we're going to talk about Ringo, just the whole Ringo experience through Ringo's eyes. <laughs> right. And um, and then after that... How, how they started to work together, how, they, how everything was coming together with George Martin and the Beatles and the label all kind of really kind of gelling and, and getting something going. Right. Oh, 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 oh,
But first, we wanted to throw in here a, a conversation that we had with Jude Sutherland Kessler, right? We wanted to talk about that. We talked about uh, quite a few things, but there were some really interesting things that we talked about, about Julia, about John's mom. So we're, we're taking the TARDIS farther back in time. That's right, yeah. Cause, cause, because Julia passed away, when was she hit by a car? Awful. Yeah, in 58. How awful, huh? Yeah. The important yeah. thing is what, what Jude is going to tell us here. Yeah. Shall we listen? Let's listen. What we know is that Mary Elizabeth Mimi. steps up to take this child when social services has visited Julia twice and told them that yeah. he's living in a bad situation. When mm. Julia's going off to play her banjo in the Brookhouse pub and others, and the little boy is heard crying by himself. Mm. When And Julia, listen, Julia is the girl that he's always looking for because she's bohemian, she's out of the box, she loves music, she laughs, she loves life. She is the kind of girl that he's looking for, but she doesn't want her life interrupted by this little boy, even though she loves him dearly. And Mimi, who is all decorum and responsibility, steps in and makes sure that he goes to school, does his homework, goes to Sunday school, does chores. When John grows up, he's half Julia and he's half Mimi. <laughs> he's determined, you know, that band's going to get to the toppermost of the poppermost. And when mm. they come back from Hamburg and George gets a job as electrician's mate and Paula goes back to school, John says, what's wrong with you? We're going to be famous and rounds them up. So you can see Mimi and you can see Julia, both of them. Most of his songs were written for Julia, no doubt about it. Half of what I say is meaningless, but I mm. say it just to reach you, Julia. She is his prime number one soul whisperer. She is the spirit he seeks. I mean, if we go back and you look at all those songs that you just listed, every single one of those stems from the fact that for very complicated reasons, this beautiful woman relinquished her little boy and yet kept her two daughters, Jackie and Julia. So it's not children she doesn't want, the little boy thinks. It's me. She likes children. And so so, yeah, maybe that's the root of uh, John's just constant insecurity. Right. And search. I'm going to prove, you know, as he says, um, I, uh, I've got every reason on earth to be sad, mad. I've just lost the only girl I had. If I could get my way, I get myself locked up today, but I can't. So I cry instead. He's going to mm. prove that he's smart enough and he's talented enough and he is gifted enough that she should have kept him. She should have gone it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she's not even there to hear it, but everything he says is just to reach her, Julia. And I think she, every girl is compared to her. If I fall in love with you, will you promise to be true and help me? Because I've been in love before. And what happened? She told me that she wasn't going to leave me. And then she did. And it, it's in every song. It's in Tell Me Why. Um, you just go back and listen to, I mean, it's very overt mm. in I'm a loser mm. and help, but it, in every song, I don't want to spoil the party. So I'll go, I'll recede. You'll never know the real me. I'm going to pull myself away from the party that is life because I don't want my disappointment to show it's in every song. So she's the prime, uh, whisperer. It's funny grow, growing up in, you know, growing up in the sixties and hearing the Beatles, we never thought about the difference in the types of lyrics that John was really directly autobiographical, just almost openly, you know. 
And we and Paul, you don't know who he's writing about. Is all these? It's like fiction or something, you know. Well, I think at one point didn't John say at one point that help was was finally him finally writing a song that was written. And it's like, no, clearly there were ones before help. Yeah, John, you can't ever trust yeah. John and what he says. He, <laughs> yeah, he just says stuff. But yeah, I mean, everyone, even his cover songs in the cavern, the songs that he chose to sing, like "Baby, It's You," were highly mm. autobiographical. He sits and he hears as a little boy Mimi and Uncle George talking about how Julia is immoral and she shouldn't be allowed to keep that little boy. She's setting a bad example. She's living in sin. It doesn't matter what they say. You know, I'm going to love you any old way. And he sings constantly about his mother. It, It makes me so mad when people say that John was never autobiographical until he met Bob Dylan. That is bull. Yeah. It's not true. He is Samuel Taylor Coleridge's ancient mariner. He grabs you by the arm, stares you in the eye, and he tells you the story of his life over and over and over again. But I, I, you know, we, and we haven't said much about Stu. And I I really don't know what would have happened to John if Stu had not come along because he, he, first his parents, he thinks both of his parents abandoned him and he loses his mother at age four and a half. Then after Uncle George dies and he isn't there for the funeral, they don't even allow him be to be there to say goodbye. Then his mother comes back into his life. They are best friends. They are inseparable. And then she's killed by a drunk driver and she he loses her a second time, but this time to death. He is so bitter and so cynical and so angry and, and just... Why has my life been so hard? Why me? And then he is given Stu. And Stu accepts him. They speak the same language. He tells him to make his band into a work of art, to dress differently, to act differently, to use his music as a canvas. And without Stu, I really don't know if John would have survived that era of his life. So he is he's one of the great whisperers of his entire existence. I think so. You know, one thing I noticed, I'm sorry, Andy, go ahead. Oh, no, I, that, that, that actually feeds right into what I was saying about how, you know, the people who talk about the fifth Beatle, blah, 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 and all that. And how it's like, you know, how many people say Stu, because to me, Stu wasn't a supposed fifth Beatle. He was a Beatle. Mm. <laughs> right, you know? right. And 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 so much of what happened in Hamburg and what came out of Hamburg and what happened with John and all that, it, yeah, it would never have happened without him. I, I think he was an, an incredible influence. He was. Andy and Larry appreciate those who listen all through the regular podcast episodes. So we have a new, very cool bonus for you, an exclusive monthly event called Beatles 60 Live. The live show is audio, not video. First weekend of every month, membership is free and audio access is free. It's all free and easy. This audio doesn't appear in the normal podcast feed, but you can access it from anywhere in the world by signing up for Beatles 60 Live. Once you sign up, you'll see how easy access is. Okay. Here's how you find the members page. There's just one simple little trick. See this episode notes. Find the Beatles60.group link. Open that in any browser. To get to the secret live page for members, just add live at the end. So it's Beatles60.group 
slash live. Again, beatles60.group slash live. The first time you get there, you'll have to sign up. It takes just a couple of seconds. Just enter any name and valid email and you're there. Bob's your uncle. It's that straightforward. Got it? That's beatles60.group slash live. We'll email you in advance of each live so you'll know the exact time to listen specified in most world time zones. And you'll have a convenient invitation link sent to you privately. You'll find stuff easily using the members-only navigation. Dead simple once you're in. Full live event information is all there. If you have any trouble, just contact Andy. He can give you the link privately or resend the confirmation email or whatever. Members who missed the live event can listen later. We'll archive each one on the Beatles 60 Live page. You can just choose a past date, hit the play button, and listen anytime. Hope you can join. Okay, listeners, coming up, the Path of Love Me Do, then the Eyes of Ringo, and then Parlophone and Beatles getting it together. Getting together. Okay, so the song Love Me Do, um, it wasn't gonna be the first A-side, but it did become the first A-side. So let's look at the long and winding path of Love Me Do. I should mention that it's unknown whether they copied the Ruddles' first single, Do Me Love, but... Uh, do me love. <laughs> do, do me love. <laughs> But anywho, John played harmonica on it, inspired by Delbert McClinton, as played on Bruce Channel's recent hit, Hey Baby, Do Me Love. Uh, when did uh, George Martin first hear it? Well, George Martin uh, would have become aware of Love Me Do during the June 6th, 1962 recording at EMI Studios, the one that was either supposed to be the first session or an audition, depending on who you talk to. But in any case, um, this is when he famously told the Beatles that someone other than John would have to sing the title line or else, uh, because of the harmonica, they would have a song called Love Me Wah! <laughs> yeah. Uh, then, uh, during the September 4th recording session, they needed a B-side for the single, which was slated to be How Do You Do It, uh, written by Mitch Murray. Of the other five songs that they had rehearsed that day before they started recording, uh, George Martin chose Love Me Do as the B-side of the single, mainly, according to some sources, because though he wasn't blown away by the song, he liked John's harmonica part. Hmm. 
So Martin thought it was good enough for a B-side, but not for an A-side, right? Yeah, right. And he thought Mitch Murray's song, How Do You Do It, would be right for the Beatles. They recorded a so-so version on the 4th. That's what you just explained, right? Yep, yeah. And that meant that they thought the single was recorded, right? Exactly. And um, I'm going to tell you (laughs) that I don't find the Beatles' version of How Do You Do It to be all that bad. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't either. I always thought it was was okay. It was all right. But, But I guess that's why they don't pay me to make those decisions. Because um, everyone, be- yes, what's that? Everyone, you're right, you're right. But yeah, everyone involved thought it was pretty lackluster, including Mitch Murray himself. And even nowadays, other people, uh, like on on Facebook, are saying, right, like, right, they'll oh, comment, oh, it's so bad. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, oh, it sounds okay to me. Yeah, uh, it's, me too. Yeah, it sings songy. It's not, uh, it's not way outside the realm, but it's not. It's not black enough, really. It's not the blues. It's not American. It's not what they were trying to do, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Beatles may have thought they'd won the battle over A-side choice on their own, you know, but there were all sorts of factors that take Love Me Do on quite a journey from possibly being a B-side to finally being chosen as a B-side to ultimately becoming the A-side. Mm. Can you describe how all that happened? Yeah, so Mitch Murray not liking the Beatles' version of How You Do It was one thing. He actually he actually offered to go to Liverpool to kind of like teach them how to play it right. <laughs> but also, you know, John had pleaded with George Martin to let them the release uh, Love Me Do instead. Then there was, importantly... The input from Ardmore and Beechwood, mm. EMI's publishing company, with Sid Coleman in charge. Coleman, right? Yeah, they they really wanted a Lennon McCartney original to be the A side because they owned the publishing rights, mm. um, or they were going to own the publishing rights. Um, so George Martin, with all of those things in mind, um, relented and decided that "Love Me Do" could be the first single. Right. Wait, why, so why don't we have um, How Do You Do It as the B-side again? Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, that's what you might think. That, well, then why don't just switch them and Love Me Do is the A-side, How Do You Do It is the B-side. But Mitch Murray um, and Dick James, who was in the market for publishing of that song, were very much against it. Um, obviously, Mitch Murray, he wanted an A-side. Um, uh... And there was uh, an agreement... Among all of the people involved, uh, people at Parlophone, and, and you know, that it was too good of a song to be a B side. It needed mm. to be an A side for someone, mm. and that did happen, and it did end up being a number one song. I mean, for the Jerry and the Pacemakers, it was like three weeks on the, three weeks on the, at number one. Yeah, and you know, I remember it. We had it in our house way over in America. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it it really did big. I re- like I totally remember as a right four-year-old or whatever. Right. Okay. So once again, to be clear for our listeners, they were there on the 4th. They finished everything. They thought they had finished everything, but then they had to come back on the 11th for kind of a a quick session to to do a B-side. Right. Because now they needed a B-side. And and, um, going into that session, they didn't know yet what that B-side would be. Um, In the end, 
the decision was that the best song recorded on the September 11th session was P.S. I Love You. So that would finish up the single. They did work for a while on Please Please Me during that session. And thankfully, I think, from the perspective of history, it was deemed not yet ready. Mm. Of course, when it was ready, well, we'll be talking about that later. I'm going to let, – let's uh, discuss that a little bit, though. Okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> so on, on Anthology, we hear this weird, like, George plucking the strings out, like, blang, mm. blang, blang, blang. That's, that, that's something weird. What was it – so he wanted to do that riff all through the song? Is that All the, through. He wanted to – right, like, like constantly through the – and Ron Richards was like, uh, no, <laughs> just only do it in these, you know, particular points. Don't just keep on playing it over and over and over again. You know, something yeah. I noticed um, in the – Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, in the anthology one, it's like dun 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 dun, dun. but in the real version, it's like dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Mm. There's that dun, dun, dun at the end, which is like very satisfying. And when they don't do it on the anthology version, I get I it irritates me. Like no, it's dun, 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 not dun. dun. <laughs> <laughs> What's unfortunate is that we don't have you know a version of the you know, of the original the way it was when it was like as George Martin twice um described it the dreary old you know like the dirgy kind of please please me that was kind of sounded like Roy Orbison yeah and 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 George Martin said no you got to speed this up <laughs> double the speed on this please and add some <laughs> harmonies to it and he was right there's still two li- two living beatles they should uh they should do what it would have sounded like or something yeah right <laughs> Through quite a bit of a um, dramatic roller coaster ride. But well, well, Larry, Larry, it, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't really on a roller coaster. Yeah, 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 not yeah. literally, like <laughs> at Butlins or something yeah. or some amusement park. Like, whoa, I'm on a roller coaster. No, no. Yeah. But big life changes, big events, uh, a new gang, really, you know, to sort of fit in with. Yeah. Big decisions uh, between mid-August and mid-September of '62. What do you think was going through his mind during this time? I mean, maybe we can tell the story of the Beatles in mid-August through mid-September through the eyes of Ringo Starr. Uh, Hey, by the way, I prefer not to call him Richie because, you know, Mm. first of all, I don't know him. (laughs) He's not my old buddy or family member. The other three Beatles called him Ringo. Is that correct? Yeah, they certainly called him Ringo in public, uh, you know, and you watch the movies and everything. And so, so uh, Richie, I think, was kept to more, you know, kind of private conversation. I thought I heard that they actually called him Ringo all the time. but I wouldn't even doubt it, yeah. So, uh, go ahead and take us through the, the four weeks, um, halfway through August through halfway through September, if you would be so kind, Andy. Okay, Um well, as Butlin's summer moved into August for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, Ringo had actually already accepted an offer to leave the group and begin playing with King Size Taylor and the Dominoes starting in September. 
it seems like he wanted to play with the Beatles. There had even been talk about it, but it was unclear if and when it was really going to happen. And, and so he was moving on. Um, when the call did come, uh, Ringo accepted it immediately. It was more money. Mm. Uh, the Beatles were actually signed. And importantly, they were, they were his friends. He must have felt great. What better news could there be? They would be heading to EMI Studios on September 4th for his first ever big-time professional recording session. How great was that? And I want to... You know, yeah. I want to point out that, like, what we often talk about their charm, but it wasn't like a goofy charm that they had. Uh, maybe maybe his was. <laughs> Ringo has kind of a goofy charm, which we, we love, right? Yeah. But, like... Each of them had a kind of a dark charm in a way, really, where like Paul's was sort of a diplomatic charm, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And John's was kind of a put on, like almost sarcastic charm, but still clowny, but still, uh, but still charming somehow, even though he was like, yeah. uh, whatever. And George, you know, sort of world weary kind of, uh, <laughs> but still, but still very, very funny. Cheeky. Yeah. Cheeky. <laughs> He's cheeky. Yeah. And so. There's something even more charming about that, if you know what I mean. It's not like a yeah. not like a goofy charm, but like there's something grounded, earthy charming about these guys, and that he had to have picked up on it. Yeah, I buy that. I think they all had somewhat of a of a good feeling about what was going on. I, and Ringo, it had to have been just yeah, a great feeling with them, with with everything that was happening. Uh, that feeling was certainly still surrounding him when the Beatles arrived at EMI Studios for a second session on September 11th, after they had recorded those songs that we already talked about on September 4th, um, Ringo had no idea that uh, George Martin and his assistant, Ron Richards, had disliked his drum work from the session on September 4th. Uh-huh. But when the Beatles arrived, they found Andy White already there with his drums set up. He had been called in by Ron Richards basically because they only had an hour and 45 minutes to record a B-side. Um, so they wanted someone who they knew could get it done. And that devastated Ringo. There's your roller coaster, right? You're way up at the very top. And then that's when the huge fall happens. There's a drummer there like where you sp- where you're supposed to be. You know, he would actually say... I was highly upset, highly upset. It blew my fucking brain away. I thought, oh, I'm going to kill these guys. <laughs> thought they were going to do a Pete Best on me. <laughs> um, yeah, so, Eric. Okay. Uh, in the end, he was allowed to play Maracas on P.S. I Love You and Tambourine on some takes of Love Me Do that they recorded to see um, if they could get a better recording than the previous week, mm. but but with Andy White on drums, mm. right? Can you imagine how that felt? Roller coaster is probably the closest analogy you know that can be made. Extreme high mm. and about the lowest low you can imagine, just like sudden and fast, and you know, worse yet, there was still the unknown. What would the future hold? You know, would he ever be allowed to play? Uh, you know, he would say. That he had at least a little bit of a grudge against George Martin for that, that he never really completely got over it. But they became very good friends, so I just don't understand. Yeah, yeah. It's it Something about this confuses me. I feel like Columbo. You know, I'm a little confused, Ringo. You said... <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, like, most of us can understand when, when it's explained to us why... 
you know, okay, we got to get Richards would do this. Like, we got to get through this quickly. Let's just get the guy in who we know we can do it. And, and I don't know, most of us would understand, but like, I think <laughs> Ringo really never, uh, never accepted it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's going to be something that we'll be looking at, you know, <laughs> as we keep on going to see, you know, we'll be watching that relationship a lot, I think. Remember what George Martin would eventually say, right? You've got that here, right? Right. Um, so this is this is coming from um, David Bedford's book, Finding the Fourth Beetle, The 23 Drummers Who Put the Beat Behind the Fab Three, yeah. David Bedford and Gary Popper. They say, Although George Martin wasn't initially impressed with Ringo's drumming, he grew to appreciate his style. They soon became good friends. Well, R Ringo always got and still gets a unique sound out of his drums, a, a sound as uh, distinctive as his voice. Martin said, Ringo gets a looser, deeper sound out of his drums that is unique. Martin said, This detailed attention to the tone of his drums is one of the reasons for Ringo's brilliance. Martin said, Another is that although Ringo doesn't keep time with the metronome accuracy, he has an unrivaled feel for a song. If his timing fluctuates, it invariably does so at the right place at the right time, keeping the right atmosphere going on the track and giving it a rock-solid foundation. George Martin said, This held true for every single Beatles number Richie played. And they soon became good friends. So this is sort of at odds with that, like, grudge. I don't, I don't really understand. Right. Yeah. It's a beautiful quote, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Righty. Now, the Parlophone contract was technically over after the September 11th recording session. If the first single didn't chart, that'd be it for them, probably, eh? You know, for a less charismatic, less dynamic, less exciting group, uh, it, it's, it's now like, be one flop and you're out. Can you, can you very quickly walk us through that? dynamic yeah i mean it's pretty much as simple as that it, you know their contract uh was for the recording of six songs they had done that uh there was not even a guarantee that a single would be released at all that wasn't part of the contract it was just record six songs and after the september 11th session the contract was officially marked in the emi uh records as complete you know they stamp complete mm. you know mm. um of course, George Martin had decided to release a single, um, but as you said, if Love Me Do had been a complete failure, EMI and Parlophone had the right to just pull the plug. And it, it didn't get to number one or anything. How, how high did it chart in the UK? Right. Uh, 17. Which is uh, respectable, right? Right. It got, it's in the, the, it was always, the goal was to make it to the BBC Top 20. And so they did that. Ah, they just made it over the... Okay. Yeah. So this is... It. We're talking in the future now, which we don't normally do. Yeah. But like, yeah, that's that's about to happen after it's released in October. 
Yeah. Um, uh, so that takes us to the point where there was really no way Parlophone was going to get rid of the Beatles. I mean, from what I've read here and there, it sounds like the Parlophone guys, Richards et al., and the guys in the Beatles, maybe except Ringo, had this sense after P.S. I Love You went pretty well and smoothly that working together... Some kind of future chart magic might be possible. I'm, I'm reading in between the facts here, um, but it sounds like um, if you were there that day, you know, their working relationship was probably forming into something strong or something between magic and interesting. What do we want to say? Intriguing, let's say. Yeah. Uh, an intriguing sense of a new way onto the charts. Would Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. Um- and to say, like, you bring up uh, P.S. I Love You, the recording of that, that actually went so well that they had floated the idea of making that the A-side um, at at one point. But um, Ron Richards kind of was like, nah, there's there's another song with that name out there. And, and, and John was like, well, but we really want this kind of the bluesy harmonica song to be, you know, so that kind of went away. But, it, but that is how well it was going, you know, and we've, we've talked about, um, before about um, how George Martin felt that he could work with them, mainly because of their charm and how well they got along together. And as much as Ringo was steamed about how he was treated, Ron Richards said that he had no doubt Ringo would become ready. Uh, remember, it was beyond commonplace that session drummers were brought in to play mm. with, with bands. Mm. So I don't really get the impression that George Martin was looking for ways to get rid of the Beatles or anything. Um, he liked them. He enjoyed working with them. Not to get too far into the future here, because we've already been <laughs> close to that. Mm. But over the next couple of months after the release of Love Me Do, deciding to keep working with the Beatles would become easy for a couple of reasons. And do you want to know what they are, or should we keep that for later? <laughs> uh, let's see. Deciding to work with the Beatles would become easy, you say? Yeah. <laughs> Easy decision after a while. Um, because they chart? Well, because we, we, uh, we've already touched on both of these a touch, right? Because Love Me Do did do, it did get into the BBC Top 20, which was a goal. But not only that, it was on the charts for 18 weeks. Ah, uh, that's it. That's it. You know, and even though it only reached number 17... 18 weeks for a song that didn't even make the top 10, that's like double the amount of time that most singles would spend on the charts, even if they made the top five or the top 10, you know? So, um, so it was really intriguing that, you know, okay, yes, the top was 17, but it had staying power. It kept on going up and down. That's really interesting. How do we interpret that, that long, that long, so it's like people were hip, People who are hip to it yeah. were hip to it. That's what it kind of means. It's almost like a subculture, it implies to me. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now it seems like everything just sells immediately because of just the way things happen, the way, the way things are released now. There, there, you know, there was a building up and then, but the staying power, yeah, mm. just incredible. Mm. And, and you know what the second thing was? Because we touched on it just barely. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's go ahead. <laughs> 
It was please please me. Yeah, then that gets to that gets to number one, doesn't it? Once, well, d- depending on which chart. I mean, on the official BBC chart, uh, the official UK charts, it only got to number two, yeah. but but it did get number one on a couple of charts. But um, when it was ready, when it was finally ready, and they recorded it, and it was done. That was the song where George Martin said to them, you know, congratulations, boys, you've just recorded your first number one. This is the kind of thing I always wonder about when, you know, Fleetwood Mac had that hit album after they recorded it. Did they feel like that was a this is a fucking hit album or yeah. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> How did they feel when they recorded? Did they already know, like, oh, holy fuck, this is a we're this is a we're going to be huge. Right. Did they know that or not? Hmm. It's hard to say. These are great songs. I, I mean, they put down all throughout the the Beatle literature. Love Me Do is kind of a little bit put down or something. Yeah, as if it's a lesser song. But um, I always loved it. <laughs> I don't maybe call me simple, but I thought it was a pretty good song. Yeah, I, I, I it, it's not my favorite era of of Beatles songs, but at the same time, I mean, as I've been doing this project, I've really been appreciating things that were developing them so much more. And it does have everything that 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 John wanted about it. It had the 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 more bluesy feeling. He wanted there to be a harmonica in in a UK single, you know, things like. And that was actually interestingly enough, that was actually starting to happen even outside of the Beatles too. Yeah, yeah. So so it wasn't actually the very first one, but but still. Yeah. Um, well, it's, imp- it's important for us to throw in though. Right now, September 1962. Yeah. Uh, so the the single's released on October 5th. Yeah. And e- even then, they still don't know. That's right. They still don't know. Right. They don't know at all. I I mean, you could almost argue that that throughout the entire reign of Love Me Do, you know, even going into the beginning of 1963, they still didn't really know what was going to happen that year. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that great quote of George Martin explaining Ringo's reliability and brilliance came to us via David Bedford, whose book we already cited and will link to in the show notes. Their source was George Martin's 1995 book, Summer of Love, The Making of Sgt. Pepper. We'll link to that too. Many thanks to Lennon historian Jude Sutherland Kessler for offering us a clearer sense of the importance to John's music of his uh, mother, Julia Stanley Lennon, and his relationship with said mother. You can find our full hour of discussion with Jude at beetle60.group slash live. That's B-E-A-T-L-E-S-6-0 dot group slash live. Our October live guest will be historian Rob Gertson. For the live date and time, see beetle60.group slash live. Special thanks to Denise A. LaPola, Grant Adrian Heaton, Mark Lewison, and Eric King Mixer Howell. Be sure to follow the Beatles 60 podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Sir Andrew. Well, thank you for having me. Do you, would, you, would you like to say that? In, would you like to? I, I understand that you. you... <laughs> well, 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 <laughs> well, I'd really like to thank you for having me on, Larry. Uh, it's been a, a privilege and, and an honor to, to be part of your show. 
Well, thank you very much indeed, Richard Nixon, as done by Dan Aykroyd. As done by Dan Aykroyd, yes. <laughs> I do not do impersonations of individuals. I do impersonations of people doing impersonations of individuals. <laughs> bye, everybody. Okay. And on that note, bye. <laughs> <laughs> We're in 97 megahertz in stereo. And now, a message from our sponsor. This is Brian, or Epi, as the boys are fond of calling me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Beatles 60. The Beatles, at their heart, are storytellers. I'd like to invite you to go even deeper into their story by listening to another program called A Day in Their Life an audio drama of the Beatles' story. Both Andy and Lawrence agree. It's simply marvellous. For details, visit Beatledrama.com or see the show notes for this Beatles 60 episode for the link. Thank you. Thank you. Here's our number again, 0612286262, and it's contest time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, I know what you mean, because, yeah, doing the... Not my normal tone of voice. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, all right, all right. Get the idea. Something like that. Okay. Oh, that's evil. I'm I'm stroking my goatee while I say it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. I want to do the whole show like Mick Jagger. <laughs>